Hello, Revelers. Oh my gosh, we have so much to talk about. So this is going to be a long introduction and I might even have a long outro. Sorry. And there's just no way to get around it because a lot of y'all don't read the show notes. So here we go. First of all, wasn't that a cool new introduction to the show? That is my guest, Keith Rodriguez, putting his spin on Tony Blank's Rebel Rebel music. He did that specially just for this episode, and that's just a clip. The full track will be at the end of the episode at the outro. Second is that it's a big, big week between band books and Spotify, two things that uh, definitely impact this episode and Rebel Rebel overall. Normally, we talk about a lot of books, and this time, Keith and I just talked about music, 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 and never got into any books. So read some gosh darn band books. Go to bookshop.org. Check out the link of all of the Rebel Rebel books. Not many of them are banned, but the point is to read. And if you do want a list of banned books, obviously you can Google that, or you can just email me or contact me in some way, and I will give you a personal curated list of what banned books would be good for you. Okay, next thing to Spotify. This is important to me because it's it's hard to get my podcast on all the different platforms where people go to for their podcasts, and Spotify is one of them. And of course, it is important to take a stand, and I just didn't have time to figure out how to temporarily, hopefully, suspend my RSS feed for the podcast that comes from my website to all the different podcast app you know, platforms out there. And if they don't fix their shit by the next time an episode comes out, then I will have to do that, either to temporarily suspend it or to cancel entirely. If you really, really, really only love listening to me on Spotify, please contact me and tell me why, why you use them, why it's important to stay on there. Otherwise, I'm thinking that it'll be fine to just drop that one. One quick note of apology, Revelers. It has taken me even longer than normal to get this out. Keith and I recorded this in December. And then I have been editing this and trying to get it out since pretty much the end of January. There's even been a week in between when I first started recording the information here on this introduction. So please, please, please remember that mental health is super important. Mine has been struggling through this process for many reasons. My mom was in the hospital since the middle of December until just last week. And just winter extra work of shoveling and dealing with the cold and trying not to slip on the ice and pipes freezing and all that bullshit has just really, really taken a toll on my timeline. So my apologies. And lastly, This is my last interview in that I have no more guests lined up. I've got a couple of people who were like, later, I'll do it later, but I've got no one 
who want to do it now. And I've got no more in the can, as they say. So I don't know when the next episode will come out. I need you guys to find me more people to talk to. I need you guys to step up and say I have important life stories that have cool things, unexplainable, serendipitous things to share. And I need more listeners to get my stats up. There are a couple of big name people who I won't go into who say that they'll do my podcast if I had bigger numbers. So I need everyone to share, to like, subscribe, and share, and get me some more guests who are willing to do it while the numbers are still relatively low. Now, no one's numbers are going to be as high as that idiot Rogan's, but we can all do our part to get good content out there and get it listenership. So please chip in in the sense of sharing and putting reviews up there and anything to get the word out to other listeners as well as other people who want to be on. All right, well, it's time to jump into this very awesome and music-filled interview. And please, please do go to the show notes. Remember, the best place to see the show notes is either my website or on CastBox, where you can easily see the links and click on them, unlike other platforms. And Keith has sent us lots of good stuff to see and listen to in addition to the pieces that you're hearing on this episode. So welcome, Keith Rodriguez. How are you, man? We haven't seen each other in how many years? Yeah, it's been a long time. I mean, (laughs) uh, 87 to uh, 2017 is 30 years. That's too long to keep counting. No, I agreed. And so you've never come to any of the reunions? I did. I went to two of them, I think. Uh, I went to the maybe the 15 year reunion and then like the 20 year somewhere around their reunion. Okay. Well, I missed the 20, but I was at the 15. So we must have bumped into each other because it was nice and intimate. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm saying 15, 20 sort of as, you know, random relative figures. Oh. You know, oh, okay. I, I really don't remember. I didn't, I didn't really keep tabs on it. I know I went one year with Era because Era had gone before and he said, oh, man, you got to go. They're really great. It's really cool. And, and it was pretty cool. Wow. OK, we did not know each other really well in high school. We kind of ran in some of the same circles, but yeah, we had we had mutual yeah. friends, I think. Yeah. And I've been thinking about it. And I was like, yeah, you know, I don't really know him. So I feel like I'm interviewing an almost stranger. Well, you see my photo, but absolutely. That's true. Um, yeah. Especially with all this time that's. Lapse between between then and now, right? So obviously, a through line between then and now would be music. Yes. You were pretty much, I think, into the same music back in the day. So let's talk about this. Since I didn't really know you that well, um, mm-hmm. were you growing up like already playing music? Or did you have a musical household? Uh, no, that's the the irony of it. My dad uh, played guitar in a rock band when he was in high school. You know, in the sixties. He knew like three chords. So he was he was the one that had a guitar laying around the house. And I used to pick up the guitar and pretend like I was Elvis Presley. Um, <laughs> and I was, you know, five, six. And at seven, I started taking guitar lessons. At seven, at the age of seven, I started taking some guitar lessons. We lived in New Jersey at the time. And I had a <gasps> oh my gosh. Okay. So yeah. point of connection. I moved to San Diego from New Jersey as well. Oh wow. Yeah. So what part of, of Jersey? 
Well, uh, a place called Spotswood is where I grew up those first eight years of my life. And then my grandparents were from Tom's River, and we spent a year in Tom's River before moving out to California. All right. I was from South Jersey. Yeah. I, I really don't know much about it. I mean, when people ask me, where are you from? I always say I'm from California, from San Diego. Yeah. I mean, when you're before eight, I mean, I have, you know, flashes, memory flashes. Yeah. But so to, uh, to answer your question about the music, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, my mom sings. She has a, a, a nice voice, a pleasant voice. But, um, you know, usually like when I have students that have a musical gift, I always tend to make the connection with, you know, either a household that's very musical or it just sort of seems to run in the blood, so to speak. Right. Right. But in my case, it kind of came out of nowhere. And then interestingly enough, my younger brother, Christopher, through some of my influence, picked up the bass and he plays the bass semi-professionally as well. So that's kind of cool. That is. And all my kids, all my kids play. But that's my fault. I made them play the guitar from the time they were like three. <laughs> <laughs> so you graduated from high school. And did you immediately start studying guitar in yeah, college with, as well? Or what happened there? I did. I did. Well, I took guitar lessons um, like that first. Those first lessons I took in New Jersey were relatively insignificant, I would say. I had a few lessons and I knew how to tinker around with the guitar. I knew a few notes. But when we moved out to California, my dad took me to a guitar studio and I began taking classical guitar lessons. You said you were taking classical lessons. So from the get go, it was classical. Yeah. Yeah. It was classical guitar. I mean, a lot of people have that, that same uh, experience or that same background, a lot of guitarists, you know, it's just sort of the, the regulated sort of structured lesson option for kids you know either you take regular guitar which mm -hmm. i guess would be the guy that could show you some strumming patterns or if you're lucky you'd have a jazz teacher or you have classical guitar which is sort of a generic let's get started with the guitar anyways okay so i had a um, classical guitar classes from about uh eight from about eight or well let's see i was must have been nine when i moved out to california so at about nine years old and i took lessons up until about i was 15 so i remember playing in the school talent show and and, uh, you know, I was the only guy I knew who was playing classical guitar. I happened to have a neighbor up the street who was a, a classical guitarist, Esteban Cerruti. He probably still lives there in Rancho Peñasquitos. Yeah. Huh. So, and then at 15, I discovered uh, Bob Dylan mm -hmm. and Jimi Hendrix. And I just uh, told my guitar teacher, look, I'm going to play some rock and roll. And, and I remember him telling my dad, oh, don't worry. He'll come back to it. He'll come back to it. My dad was having conniptions. You know, he thought, oh, no, he's going to, you know, go to the dark side with the guitar. He's... <laughs> 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 but um so yeah and then in high school i was very much into uh rock and roll i had a band i i played with friends in high school and and then when it came time to go to college i thought well what do i like doing what do i want to study what am i going to major and i had no idea so the only thing i'm really impassioned about is music and so i signed up as a music major and that reintroduced me to the classical guitar and where did you go to college well i went to ucsd okay and i was incredibly lucky because the uh romero family i don't know if you've heard of them Pepe Romero, Angel Romero. They're a, a legendary family of guitarists, classical guitarists from Spain. And um, the Romeros taught at UCSD. So I was able to do my undergraduate program with Celine Romero. And I had the chance to study with his brother Pepe and the father. And yeah, it was you know, an amazing, an amazing uh, stroke of luck to have those guys as teachers because they're, they're just fantastic. They have this great methodology of how to play the guitar naturally and yeah. yeah. <laughs> so do you think if you hadn't had them as your teachers that you would have still ended up in Spain? 
Um, yeah, they weren't the reason I came to Spain. Actually, it was a girl. It was a girl. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh no, it always is, right? Yeah. Now. Well, um, the girl was the reason I came back to Spain, and, it, and she's definitely the reason I settled here. But interestingly enough, the reason I actually came to Spain in the first place is because I had a Spanish teacher at Mount Carmel High School named uh, Profe Daubert. You may have you might have taken lessons with her. I had Vitale. Okay. Well, I had Daubert. I had her for probably all four years of my high school stay at Mount Carmel. And um, she played a slideshow for us of a trip that she had taken with students to Spain. And this was, I must have been maybe a junior in, in high school. And I saw these photos and these the bull ring and the flowers and the narrow streets. And I thought, wow, this is so amazing. I've got to go to Spain. So when I got to college and, you know, I wasn't really that set on being a classical guitarist. I mean, like I said before, it was what I was studying because that was just sort of the thing to do, but I wasn't sure if I was going to go into jazz or, or rock or, or whatever. So I came to Spain uh, just to have my year abroad and I met my current wife, uh, who was, of course, at the time, the woman that lured me into staying in Spain. So I met her and I was in Spain for two years. Then I went back home, finished my finished my studies. And when I went back home after being in Spain, that was when I knew, OK, I'm definitely going to be a musician. You know, Spain kind of whipped me into shape that way. And I was focused. And then it's been a pretty straight shot since then. You know, um, I finished my undergraduate degree at UCSD. Then I did my my master's at San Diego State, all of this with the same teacher. I had Celine Romero as my, as my teacher throughout this time. Wow. And then after that, I said, what do I do now? I've, I've, you know, I've got a degree and well, there's some great guitarists in Spain. So that's when I came back to do another postgraduate program here in Spain. I feel like I'm talking too much, Lauren. Sorry. Oh, you're good. No, let's go back to what you said about how Spain kicked your ass in the shape. What, talk a little bit more yeah. about that, please. Yeah. Well, I, in the sense that um, it was a real growing experience, a real maturing uh, process for me. I actually went a year later than a lot of my um, colleagues. I was 21 when I came to Spain. So everyone's real excited. They got to go to the bars and I'm like, well, I've been doing this. Well. Plus I had a fake ID before that. So I, <laughs> the bar <laughs> thing wasn't new to me. Um right. But, you know, I, I taught English classes while I was here that uh, just sort of fell into my lap. A lot of people that I had spoken to th that had been to Spain previously said, oh, you've got to teach English. It's a great way to make money. And it's super easy. So I began teaching English here in Spain. And that opened up a whole uh, realm of, of uh, possibilities for me as a teacher, as an educator, which, uh, you know, w for better or for worse, I... Uh, I enjoyed it. You know, I felt like I was relatively good at teaching. And so then, you know, from teaching English, I went to teaching guitar and, and I'm a music teacher now at a high school, a junior high, high school, seven through 12 here in Spain. And really that started from my, my trip here in Spain. So, you know, the idea that you, you've got, you know, I was paying for my, paying for my own way at the time, um, getting into some trouble, lost my passport at one point in, Portugal. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Some crazy adventures. You know, Europe is great. So I was, uh, I actually stayed two years after our, our first one year stay expired. I was madly in love with this woman and um, she tells me she was in love with me as well. So that kind of worked out well. So I stayed another year. <laughs> <laughs> and um, oh, and did a, yeah, I did a ton of traveling. So yeah, I think just being out on my own and so far from home in that sense, it, you know, when I came back to the United States, 
when I went back to finish my studies, I mean, I, I started getting A's. I was never getting A's, you know, and because I was really doing things for me, I was doing things uh, with focus and with a purpose. So it was, yeah, it was pretty different, pretty different experience after that. Yeah. You grew up. Yeah. I don't want to be <laughs> yeah too cliche yeah. about it, but certainly there, certainly there was, there was some growing that took place during those two years. I had a great time too. Yeah. So now how did you meet your your love. Yeah, that's a that's a whole nother story. I was pretty ruthless. You know, I was I, we uh, I had actually been here in Spain. I think I had set foot on Spanish soil maybe two weeks prior or eight days prior to meeting her. So we got to Madrid, and then after a couple of days, we were sh- bussed up to uh, the north of Spain, a place called Santander, which, ironically enough, um, it's been our summer go-to place for the past. 15 years and I rediscovered mm-hmm. surfing through Santander. You know, who would have ever thought that the north of Spain would be a surfing haven? Right. So, yeah, it just really in a certain roundabout way, you know, coming full circle. So, I, I was up there for about, I was, I should say, I was here in Spain for about eight days. And after two or three days being up there uh, in Santander, actually, I did a very smart thing. I hooked up with a really handsome uh, German guy that I had met. Okay. Till. Till was his name. I mean, a real lady killer, right? You gotta, uh-huh. you know, guys need, need that, you know, guys like me need a, you know, need something like that to, to get their foot in the door. Right. So anyways, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And it's funny because my wife always says, Oh, I just had a great time with you. I wasn't really attracted to you. You were just such a nice guy. And then, well, yeah, anyways, <laughs> the proof is in the pudding, right? That's right. No. Right. <laughs> so, um, so no, we were just cruising around doing what, tourists do we were trying to pick up on chicks and all the girls were just laughing us down the street just turning their heads leave us alone you know right and we're we're walking down this hill towards a plaza there's a plaza at the bottom of this sort of street that ends in a a plaza and uh, my wife Lourdes and her friend were having an ice cream at the bottom of this at the end of this plaza leaning up against the car and they're watching the two foreigners as we were walking down the hill hitting each bar trying to talk to the each crowd being rejected by crowd after crowd and they said well here they come what do we do ah we'll just we'll give them we'll give them the time of day we'll give them a, you know give them the chance to see what they have to say and we had a we had a great conversation with them we were laughing everything was fantastic and then we had we, we made plans to meet them the next night at a party. And they said, sure, come to the party. And we didn't think they were going to go. So we didn't go to the party. We showed up at like 1 a.m. And the girls were there with their arms folded. Like, you guys told us to come to this party. And you, so. Nice. I guess we were playing hard, playing hard to get, you know, unintentionally. Yeah. And uh, the rest is kind of history. So that's how I met her. Yeah. So at this point, when you first meet her, you're speaking Spanish. Uh, yeah, I was trying. I had I had been studying Spanish for almost eight years. I mean, I had a, a year and a half in junior high school and then four years of, of high school um, and then some Spanish that I studied in college. So I knew I knew a lot of grammar. I really didn't know how to speak that well. But that's a good distinction. That is a very good distinction. And uh, your German friend, how was his Spanish? Oh, his was not as good as mine, but we were all, <laughs> we were all kind of in the same. But we had gone to this uh, university to uh, what do they call it? Spanish for foreigners was sort of the summer course yeah. that we were taking there. Yeah. Yeah. I figured you were going to say that he was relying on his looks and not talking Spanish so much. Oh, well, yeah. His, his looks were, were really off the charts. There's a really funny photograph that I still have of, okay, so this was the, I met my wife and then they, the party. And then after the party, we said, well, let's have a date with these girls. And so we said, let's, let's go to have a picnic over by the lighthouse, you know, looking over the ocean and everything. And there's a fantastic photo of, 
after I had taken the guitar out and started strumming and singing some songs and the German was just pouting. He was just, you know, he had lost <laughs> his, I, I, I took his game away from him basically. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, yeah. so, you know, language is hard when you got there, were they like, yeah, you're not really speaking Spanish properly. Well, uh, let me tell you, I've been living here for what, I don't close to 30 years now and I still have an accent and that's never going to really go away. You know, there's certain things that are the R that you have to pronounce here that, you know, the right. rolling R. I mean, sometimes I get it. And most of the time I don't. What and, do your kids think of you and your accent? Are they embarrassed? No, no, no. Oh, my, okay. my accent is, my accent is not your typical American accent. I mean, uh, I guess I'm pretty, pretty fortunate that way. I mean, I was very, 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 uh, ready to um, integrate into the culture when I got here. You know, I remember deliberately leaving the, the group of American university students that I was with and just going off on my own into the city at night because I wanted to have that international experience. And um, one of the upsides to that was that after about three months, um, I mean, I was hardly speaking any English at all. Oh. You know, I made some friends and I, I, you know, I had a small group of, of good friends, some of, some of which I, I still am friends with that, that uh, group of people that I met over here. But yeah, my Spanish got really good. So after about three months, I felt like I was, you know, not bilingual in the true sense of the word, but I was certainly able to, to get around and I felt bilingual. And then after a year, that was more than enough time to be very fluent in Spanish. And do you dream in Spanish? Yeah, sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause they yeah. say that, you know, that you're really becoming bilingual when you start dreaming in the other language. Yeah. Yeah. I've also heard that if you can, if you do math, if you calculate things in the other language too, that's another litmus test to see if you're really mm -hmm. bilingual or not. I hadn't heard that one, but it makes sense. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So let's go back to guitar. Okay. Um, and you get to educate everybody. What makes mm. classical guitar that's that classical Spanish sound, what, what are the components of it that are different than yeah. other guitar styles? Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting that you say Spanish guitar because it's typically um, debated, you know, or criticized that hmm. the Spanish guitar as such isn't really um, such a thing anymore. It's certainly, in, in fact, the guitar, I guess you could argue that it originated in Spain, you know, with, with instruments that were, precursors to the guitar but um like there was the the hand viol the vihuela de mano which is an instrument that is sort of the precursor to the classical guitar um sort of like the harpsichord would be to a piano okay you know if you want to make that comparison but then there was also a lute you know they had the baroque lute the renaissance lute and so a lot of different stringed instruments sort of converged together at the end of the 18th century into what would be the classical guitar um so to call it the Spanish guitar in that sense, I guess it would be sort of a historical mistake, you know, to say that because it was very popular in France. It was very popular in Italy, very popular in England. And also there were a lot of great virtuosos from Spain as well. So what makes the classical guitar a classical guitar? Um, oh, and then you have people that criticize that, that term, that it's not a classical guitar. It's, it's a classic guitar. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. You can get lost in the definitions or right. what, what have you. But I guess what really makes the classical, classical guitar um, distinct is uh, the fact that you're playing classical music on it. You know, you're playing written music. And for example, all the repertoire that I'm working on, 
that I've been working on for quite some time is music that's uh, written out by a composer. Um, and if you're lucky, if it's, if it's a more contemporary piece, in fact, it tells you, the score tells you how much intensity they want, how much volume they want with certain notes, you know, the, the way you should be phrasing things and the way you should sort of shape your melodies and, uh, you know, interpretive indications as well, which is quite different than, say, jazz guitar, where you're given a series of chords and you have a melody in your head and you just sort of improvise over that, that structure and with those uh, musical elements. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very, it's very unique that way. It's very removed from, uh, or at least in this sense, it's very removed from most of the music that we listen to. In fact, most of the music that I even listen to, I listen to a lot of, obviously a lot of rock and, and, uh, and I guess I don't listen to a lot of rock anymore because rock is sort of a dying thing <laughs> nowadays, but a lot of, a lot of contemporary music, you know, independent, what, what have you, um, that don't rely on scores. You know, it's, it's about writing, writing songs and having lyrics that are meaningful to try and say something. So you sent me a piece by Bach, I believe. And um, mm -hmm. I have it, I have That's it right. queued up. Bear with me. Let me, sure. let me play that. And then we can talk about it uh, a little more again. place to end that we could play the whole thing but when i heard it i was like wow i've never quite heard bach just like that before it's mm. it had a very um and i i love music but i don't really know music terms so i probably say the wrong thing but it definitely had a spanish flavor to it mm -hmm. and it, it like the way you were picking the way you were strumming the way all of that sounded mm -hmm. much more spanish than any other bach piece i've ever I guess paid attention yeah. to we should say <laughs> and yeah. and that is you putting that your flavor into it no um I I would no? I would hope not um only because in this case Bach you know it's it's such a revered music that he in such a sublime music that Bach made the objective for uh, at least for me and, and my idea of what it means to make uh beautiful music um as a classical musician I want to interfere as little as possible with what Bach did because what he did was perfect as it is. So gotcha. one of the, and I was, I was thinking about this as I was hearing the notes, I was thinking, wow, it's, it's so demanding. Um, you know, you asked before what makes a classical guitarist or a classical guitar classical as opposed to popular or jazz or country or rock or whatever. Um, it's that there's so much work put into reproducing the music and being faithful to that score and doing things a certain way, you know, you really, it's like, I think almost of like a gymnast who has a routine and she has to just nail that triple flip or whatever she has to do. Right. There's so much effort put into getting the sound just right. The tone. And I use my fingernails to play. Um, I, I noticed right. that. Yeah. And it's, 
you know, even just the way you file your nails, uh, you're looking for tone. It's all about getting that sound. And um, it's very demanding. So um, maybe what you're hearing as, uh, and perceiving as Spanish is just sort of a natural uh, element of the guitar. It's a, it's a piece, this particular prelude is very well suited to the guitar. It really works great on the guitar. And it sounds like music that was written for the guitar. Initially, it was written for the violin. This uh, one of the violin partitas that Bach wrote. And um, it sounds great on the violin, but with the guitar, you have the added bass notes and you have this added polyphony. So it sounds a little fuller. Yeah, it just sounds like guitar music. It doesn't sound like you're yeah. trying to do something. It just, it works great on the guitar. So maybe that's what you're, that's what you're, uh, you're perceiving. I'll take it as a compliment. Anyways, I. <laughs> For sure. That's what I meant. Because the, in Spanish playing, there seems to be a complexity to the finger movements. You know, it's not a simple hit the G down, down, up, <laughs> up, down, up like that. You know, it's very like there's three to four levels of things going on at all That's times. Right. It sounds like. That's right. That's right. You have the thumb uh, articulating bass notes and then the fingers, the remaining three fingers are uh, playing a, pri a, a principal melody and then some inner voices. So you're right. You could have literally four different voices moving at the same time. And it makes for a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hard work too. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it looks, you make it look easy, but you know how much time you have to put in something to make something look easy. So absolutely. So with that complexity of the notes, do you actually, uh, how does, uh, there's no good way to ask this, but for a non-instrument playing person, it seems like it has to alter how you think, like that you think and hear and just walk through life sort of differently with a lot more nuance that you're maybe picking up on than other people do. Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to say that I, uh, I'm perceiving more of anything than anyone. Now that would be, it would be, in, I would be in danger of being arrogant by saying that, but I do believe that music opens up compartments of the mind, you know, both from my own experience and, and what I've read that allow us to have, you know, a little more sensitivity I happen to be a sensitive person anyways, you know, I'm, you know, I cry in certain emotion in movies, you know, I cry mm -hmm. easily. Right. No, but I think uh, we're too old to be emo. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I mean, I, and I'm convinced of this because like I said, my own experience um, primarily, but there's so much intelligence, there's so much neural activity involved and emotional activity involved with, this piece that you know, this fragment of this piece that you just played, you know, memorizing the piece, processing this abstract language and turning it into sound, keeping the balance right, get, getting an idea, you know, a nonverbal idea, an emotional idea out through the music. I mean, shaping mm -hmm. melodies, yeah. the, the texture. I mean, there's so much stuff going on that, um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, would would uh, at least venture to agree with you that my musicianship has given me a, a little bit more sensitivity or a heightened uh, sensitivity in terms of how to walk through life. You know, I would hope so. That would be the, the ultimate benefit, right? That what we do makes us a, a better person, you know? And how does that translate to you teaching it to kids, particularly, you know, in, in the past few years? Well, yeah, actually, I've, I've been teaching guitar since 1993 and teaching music as a subject uh, at the school since 1998. Yeah, I kind of distinguish between my 
uh, I mean, I'm, I have to be very, very clear with myself and with my students about this, that my being a professional musician and my, the intensity with which I approach music um, is something that I'm very aware of. I'm very aware of the powers and the beauty of music, but I, I'm very careful to not um, expect the same thing from my students and to necessarily expect them to have exactly the same experiences I have. You know, you have to, you have to keep in mind who you're dealing with. Um, at school, a lot of the kids are in the music class don't want to be there to start with. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be in music. They don't want to be in math. They don't want to be in any of it. You know, they want to be at school, period. So it's, there's a challenge there. So it's a, it's a required course then? That's right. The, oh, okay. uh, my 10th graders, it's an, it's an op optional course. It's an elective course for them. But every, everyone else, it's, it's required. There's that element. Um, and fortunately, because music is such a strong language, uh, it works. You know, and you just play a beautiful piece of music for the kids and, and you explain it with the passion that I have to, for music. And they're, they're bound to get, if not hooked, at least, you know, provoked by what, by what I'm sharing with them. Yeah. Or another example of this would be the choirs that I teach. I happened to discover choir conducting about uh, 12 years ago. Just um, a, a teacher that I work with said, well, why don't we get the kids to sing? And I said, well, geez, I don't know how to conduct a choir. I'm a guitarist. I don't know anything about that. And I discovered an amazing world that opened itself up to me of, of choir conducting and working with the voice. I actually discovered that I actually have a pretty decent voice for singing. I ended up taking singing lessons to help my students. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I've kind of gotten lost uh, in my thoughts here, but um, we were talking about what we were talking about the power of music. Uh, power of music and teaching, particularly during COVID how, times is what I was saying, uh, you know, about how, how, you were saying about how you go through life and how it impacts your life and how hopefully it impacts, you know, the listeners, all players lives and how may that have changed in the past couple of years? Well, yeah, that's the past couple of years have, have been um, definitely a parentheses and they have to be looked at a little differently, you know, more specifically. I, I would say though, before, before getting the, the, the COVID situation, just to sort of finish answering the, the, the previous question, uh, music definitely shapes my, um, my outlook, my worldview, my, you know, my, um, like what I was talking about being sensitive before, definitely. I mean, being a musician sort of gives me a different set of priorities, you know, certainly one of, one of which is making money hasn't been a priority. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> It's been about the music, right. But as you know, as trivial as that may seem, it, it really does have to do with a, a true, conviction and a true connection to you know the power and the the, the beauty and you know, or the pursuit of, of of making beautiful music you know so uh, as far as COVID yeah I mean um, I, I presume it was similar to what went down in the states we were um, actually my birthday was on the 13th my birthday is, is on the same day every year 13th of March <laughs> <laughs> and that was the day that Spain went into lockdown the 13th of March on the 11th of March, uh, 2020, um, we got sent home from the schools. And um, yeah, two days later, we went into lockdown and, and we were basically stuck at home for um, almost three months, you know, and I didn't go outside. My wife would go and, and do the, the shopping. Um, I have a, I had a kidney transplant about four, five, almost five years ago. So I'm a person at risk. So I have to be extra careful. Um, so to, to get back to the, the music in this, in the students, yeah, we began teaching online, um, which was, 
yeah, it was a new challenge, but it was also a new, um, a new experience to learn ways of saving time, you know, ways of teaching without the standard classic, you know, I'm going to stand in front of my students and give them a spiel for 45 minutes and then send them on their way. There were, you know, it opened up different uh, possibilities of how to communicate, you know, and using technology as a, as a way of communicating with music is fantastic. And you've got videos, you've got all sorts of, uh, you know, ways of using technology to your advantage in music. So, yeah. Um, one of the cool things that we did was uh, with the choir, we ended up doing some, we did a version of um, Under Pressure by oh, David Bowie. My favorite yeah. song of all time. So yes, I okay, definitely well, I got to, I got to be David Bowie in a, in a few, a few parts. It was sort of like a collage of different students from the nice. choir and, and I played the guitar and yeah, I will definitely, I'll send that to you at least. And then if, if you want to do something with it, you'd be welcome to, you have my blessing. Very cool. So that was one of the really fun things that, that, uh, that we did during lockdown. And I made some other choir videos. So I learned how to, I learned how to edit audio. Oh, um, and that's what I did over COVID too. I learned how to edit audio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny that you just picked my favorite song of all time. I just think that's awesome. I, um, I think it's the perfect and you can't do better. It's just like, it's flawless. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. The song's wonderfully written the voices. I mean, you've got two of the greatest voices ever. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I definitely look forward to hearing that. So um, you mentioned the. Okay. I, I will just say that the reason I didn't share it was because I, of course, was being very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I, I know how to say it in Spanish. I don't know how to say it in English so well. I was being a little, a little greedy and I was like, oh, I want to do the Bowie part. So oh. I was like, you know, uh, you'll see. And I, so I was a little hesitant to share it with people because I'm up there singing, right? It's not just my students singing. Well, if you, I mean, anyone who's being either Bowie or Mercury, you got to have some, some balls. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyone who tries to Absolutely. take that on, I'm sure if you're recommending it, that that means you did a really good job because you would have otherwise said, uh, no, I don't measure up to them and I'm going to just hide that away and no one will ever know about it. <laughs> I'll let you decide once yeah. you hear it. But yeah, it was fun. So let's go back to the kidney transplant. Uh, what happened? Yeah. What happened? Exactly. Why didn't anybody tell me about that when I was in high school? Yeah. Uh, yeah I don't know what happened. It's really a weird thing. Um, they still don't really know how it, how it originated. The theory is that I, I got scarlet fever a couple of times as a, as a huh. youngster. And the running theory right now is that there was a streptococci that sort of made its way down to my kidneys and sort of discreetly wreaked havoc uh, over a period of uh, 40 years, basically, or 30 something years until it was discovered. I mean, I just went to the, uh, I went for a, a checkup at work and it said, you know, my creatinine level, creatinine level was uh, a little high and I didn't really pay attention to it. I did notice the cholesterol. Well, I didn't pay attention to it because I didn't know what it was. Right. Um, but I did notice the cholesterol. So like a year later, I said, I'm going to go have a, an appointment to get my cholesterol looked at. And they were like, dude, you've got, you've got kidney failure. And so that, <laughs> and you're walking yeah. around with kidney failure. You don't even know it. You felt basically fine. Yeah, I was fine. I mean, I, you know, I had high blood pressure because the kidneys affect your blood pressure. So I had really high blood pressure. I remember going to the pharmacy and the, the, the girls at the pharmacy were like, you need to sit down. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm listening. I feel the way I always feel. Right. So, um, and so I went and I went to see a doctor and he said, okay, you basically, I had some tests run and it was all confirmed. He said, you have between one and 10 years before you're going to need a transplant. 
and he kind of laid it out to me that it, it basically depended on my diet. Um, that was really all I could do was just, you know, eat without salt to keep my blood pressure low and eat certain foods and stay away from other foods. And I was super strict about it during those, I actually ended up being 11 years, not 10 years. So I was able to hold it off for 11 years uh, from that point. And then um, after 11 years, they said, look, you're going to have to go into dialysis because your kidneys are no longer, you know, it's a gradual thing. They start, you know, your kidney function was at 30%, 20. When it gets down to about 13 is when they say, okay, you got to go to dialysis. Um, and I was super optimistic, you know, I mean, I was, I was always pretty convinced that, you know, one way or the other was going to get solved, you know, going to get resolved. And I was very fortunate to have some, some people offer me their kidneys. Of course, family members offered their kidney, but, um, they were discarded for different health reasons, you know, or, or the blood type wasn't matching up. You know, it's not a simple thing. You have to have the same blood type. The person has to be perfectly healthy. So, yeah, I, and my wife, of course, wanted to give me her kidney, but we ran some initial tests and that didn't, that didn't work out. They said there was some protein imbalance and that it wasn't going to work out. So we, we continued looking for into other options and other people were offering me their kidney. So I was, I was cool. I started dialysis. I was in dialysis for only four months. I was very, very lucky. I only had to, you know, go through that for four months. And so just, you know, it was a miraculous thing that, that took place. We decided to use my wife's kidney in a pool that was basically an exchange where she would donate her kidney to an unknown recipient. And by doing so, we'd be in this, this roulette or pool of kidney donors and recipients. And then I would get a a matching kidney for me. So really, you know, all the makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So all the pieces would have to work out and coincide at the right time. And we were recommended to a hospital, which is over here, a different hospital that had that program in place. And um, when we went to go see our, our doctor, he said, well, wait a minute, your wife has the same blood type as you do. And I said, yeah, but we're not, we're not a match because this test was done and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, let's rerun the test. And they reran the test and it was a match. No. Yeah. Talk about crazy. So, so more tests were run. And I think it was a total of like five different times, even the day before they did the transplant, she had another test run just to make sure, I mean, you know, there's no going back, right? right? They're going to take her kidney out of her body. So and that was it. And I got my wife's kidney. So now I'm really, you know, half Spanish, I guess you could say, right? Or at least <laughs> yeah. part Spanish. Right. And it's it's amazing because um yeah, I, I got my my vitality back. My guitar playing got so much better, you know, uh after the kidney. I was able to uh fully get back into doing sports and, and doing my surfing. And yeah, I mean, it it's really weird. I have to pinch myself to even think about the fact that I have a kidney transplant right now, because my life is absolutely normal. I get to eat whatever I want. I get to drink whatever I want. So, so yeah, just an amazing thing. So you said that you are high risk for, you know, things like COVID. So you stayed home. Now she is only walking around with one kidney. She's not in any higher risk than. No, no, because the high risk uh, really is based on your immune system. Okay. And the problem with my immune system um, is that I take medication to accept the kidney. Oh, okay. Right. Because it's a foreign organ in my body. So we have to lower my my defenses to accept her her kidney. And that's something I'll have to take for my whole life. As long as I have that kidney, I'll I'll be, you know, having to take certain immune suppressants. Interesting. Because after a while, you think that, all right, it's been in for four or five years. It would just be mine, right? Yeah, exactly. No, it doesn't huh. work that way. And so that what that's what makes me high risk. And she conversely doesn't have any problem with her immune system. She just has right, that one yeah. kidney. 
Okay. So. so, you know, the theme is loosely called just serendipity, you know, of how things happen in life and the connective tissue of, you know, the universe or whatever word that you choose to use about at play in your life. And, and you've mentioned right. to me, you know, before this about how you converted to Catholicism. Yes. Yes. So I would love to hear more about that and how maybe, you know, what, what you were before and how your view on the universe or God or serendipity or whatever you want to call it has worked in your life. Yeah. Well, it's definitely been a central part of, of who I am in a more acute sense, I would say, since I did convert to Catholicism back in 2012. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, if I think about it, look, I, I met my wife when I came to Spain. That's total serendipity, you know, and not only did I meet my wife on the street, which is pretty suspicious, <laughs> she <laughs> happens to have the same blood type and happens to give me the kidney. You know, I mean, there, there's so many things in my own life that I look, I can look back on as, as serendipity, or I can look uh, at that chain of events as, you know, being a God thing or a sort of a, you know, a destiny thing, if you will. But because of my, because of my faith, I do definitely see God's hand in my, you know, my life sort of things do feel like, you know, there's a, there's a continuous line of things happening for a reason. Um, and certainly now, you know, so much has come to fruition. My kidney transplant has been, been performed successfully. Um, my guitar playing, which was a total, you know, let's just go up the river practically without a paddle uh, up, you know, upstream and become a classical guitarist. I remember my grandfather telling me, good luck with that. Good luck with that kid. Because it was, it was, it was, you know, so impractical. I was, I think I was 24 at the time when he was encouraging me not to, to pursue a career in music. Of course, you know, we want people to be successful and, and safe. You know, nobody wants their, their kids or their grandkids to, to venture out heaven forbid and become a musician. Mm -hmm. ah. <laughs> But um, yeah, you know, I've, I've stuck with it and now it's fantastic. You know, it hasn't been without difficulties by, by any means, but um, yeah, so much, in my, so much in my life uh, makes sense. And like I said, my, my faith allows me to see that not just as a stroke of good luck or, or even serendipity just as an isolated phenomenon, but rather connected to you know, a higher being, uh, uh, you know, a, a larger plan. I mean, it's, it's hard to articulate because it's a very right. personal thing. You know, it's something that you sort of, it's sort of an intuition. It's an internal, you know, personal conviction more than something they can say, well, you got to do this and you got to do that and it'll work for right. you. You know, it's not, it doesn't really work that way. You know, it's, it's, um, yeah, I want to say it's a gift. It's a, it's a privilege. You know, I, I certainly feel that I feel fortunate to have the faith that I have, you know, because you know, people can have the same experience I have and not have, not have the, you know, the, the faith or the understanding that I have. So uh, I wanted to answer you, you mentioned or asked me, what was I before? Well, just really briefly, I, I grew up in a Protestant household, which is, it's ironic because I was actually baptized as a Catholic huh. um, because my dad was Catholic. Yeah. And then he converted to Protestantism because he met my mom. And I remember my grandmother, Carmen, God bless her. She's 95 in, in Florida. And she said, Margie, make sure you just ask you to do one thing. Just baptize your, your baby, your Catholic. And so it's, it's interesting. That's another example of how I was sort of, you know, 
touched <laughs> even as an infant. I was, I was baptized in the Catholic church. I went through my whole life. And then I meet this woman who's Catholic. And I mean, she didn't twist my arm to become a Catholic. You know, I was, I was a Protestant growing up in Southern California, always had a, you know, always had a pretty strong conviction of, you know, what it meant to be a Christian or my, my personal faith, my relationship with Jesus and all that. But um, I was very unhappy with what I saw in the, the, the Protestant church. You know, it seems so informal and so lacking of context. And I was always very attracted to Europe. You know, I'm kind of like an old school type guy. I want to go to Europe. I play a guitar with no amplifier, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so I was looking for a little bit more structure. I was trying to reconcile that, you know, my, my, my faith with, you know, what's the right church. In fact, I remember even going to the Orthodox church one time, the Greek Orthodox church with a friend of mine who was having similar, um, or what do they call those in inquietudes we say in Spanish when you're restless, you know, similar restlessness. And yeah, so fate would just have it. I I came to Spain and my wife who wasn't really a practicing Catholic at the time when things got serious, I'm like, so how do you feel about God? You know, it's like, what's, you know, if we're really going to do this, you know, we got to some more serious, serious discussions about, you know, the universe and all that. And, and so then she, she sort of rediscovered her faith as a, as a Catholic. And, um, she was through her parents and as a young person, she was involved in a, a community called Comunión y Liberación. I guess you would say communion and liberation is probably what it's called in, in the United States. And so I started uh, going to, you know, the masses and, and you know, the, the Bible studies, what they call the school of community with, with her. And I was really surprised because a lot of the, the, the rhetoric that they were using was so similar to a lot of the things that I had uh, heard growing up in the Protestant church. And I said, well, wait a minute, these aren't these nasty Catholics that they were mm-hmm. telling me about as, you know, in the Protestant, because, you know, they do the same thing. They demonize the Protestants and the Protestants demonize them. They're, they're yep. the enemy. And they're, you know, so. so, yeah. And that, that's kind of how that happened. I just, um, after a while, I just realized that uh, it was the right, it was the right place for me to be. And, and um, you know, things just clicked after a while. So I took the, I took the leap and, uh, I converted to Catholicism. Yeah, it was act- it was actually after a trip I had made to to Italy with some friends, and I and I saw a group of Catholics there, and I thought, oh, these guys they're just so so joyous and so vibrant, and something just sort of resonated with me. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to I don't want to talk too much about because like you could, I could we could do a whole podcast and or several on you know theology and all that. I don't want to go into all the details of it because it is kind of a complex thing. I mean, when you when you grow up and they're telling you. Oh, the Virgin Mary had, you know, had other kids and she was not, you know, all this the theological things that, that the Catholic Church sustains, you know, that Protestants reject. That's kind of like a heavy thing to, to not accept at face value, but to like rationalize it and say, yeah, okay, I'm going to undo everything that I was taught as a kid growing up and I'm going to relearn and re-embrace this, this whole new uh, theology. Yeah. Oh, and I will say that that during the festivities in the Pueblo, I had the chance to carry this this like 400 pound virgin and run up this hill with all these Spanish men. Ah, we were taking the virgin up the las fiestas de la Virgen of, of of my wife's little village, and that was certainly me getting to know the Virgin Mary in a, t- <laughs> a more uh, yeah I don't know a poetic sense, you know. That- right. Yeah. Um. So I want to make sure I heard you right. Did you say that they call Bible study uh, school for community? School of Community. School yeah. of Community. That is yeah. fascinating. I like that name much better than Bible study. Oh, I know. I, I tell my parents I was at Bible study just so that they don't ask me a bunch of questions. But yeah, it's it's not even really a Bible study. It's it's very, very different. Uh, 
the way it's the way it's presented it's uh yeah you should you should go sometime <laughs> well so what happens there if they're not really just sitting there well, talking about the bible yeah okay so the priest who um founded this movement is luigi giussani an italian priest who started, I guess, back in the fifties with this movement. And he, you know, and then the sixties, it was a really big thing because, you know, with the youth revolution in the sixties right. and uh, a lot of people embracing communism, he wanted to somehow turn faith into something that was relatable or relatable for, for people and, and make it, you know, uh, pertinent to our modern existence. And I guess one of the pillars of his whole uh, teaching was to, um, to kind of make a direct connection between like the people that Jesus was in touch with all the way up to Christianity now. So, you know, just in a very broad sense, you know, my brother, uh, my brother, who's very much into, involved with the Protestant church says, you know, you got to read your Bible. Your Bible says this, well, the focus in, in this particular movement is not about, you know, just reading the Bible, but uh, what has happened throughout history? You know, how is the church, or the Holy Spirit, if you will, you know, as God's presence somehow been a, a real factor continuing through throughout history. And it works through people so that um, our human experiences, our troubles, our, our joys are pretty much the best way for us to understand our relationship with, with God, right? So that instead of reading the Bible and saying, well, what does this passage mean? Um, there are, I mean, obviously it's Bible centered, you know, you're not just inventing a religion. It's, it's, you know, what, what's discussed is, is uh, based on, on the Bible, but translated into real experiences and real, real testimonies or real, you know, real, real questions. So that, yeah, the school of community is basically, you read a text, you'll read a text, which is typically something that uh, this, this priest, Yusani would have, uh, you know, he, he gave a lot of conferences. So maybe one of his conferences, you'd read a conference where he's discussing aspects of the Bible and then people share their experience based on what they've read, you know, well, this happened to me. And that's how I was able to see this particular uh, idea at work, you know, or at play in my life. So, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to, to even summarize this to you because you know, people, people will be hearing like, wow, it sounds like a, like a sect. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. I'm kidding. It's not, it's not a sect, but it, uh, you know, it's as strange or as, as unique as it may sound, it's, it's very church centered and very, you know, it's, it's very coherent. There's no, there's no weird stuff going on. I made sure of that before I converted. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. So I like that a lot. I've had people of lots of different faiths or lack of faith or just sort of a, most people just say that they're spiritual. I've had a few people who were like, I'm not even spiritual. I just, you know, don't believe in any of that, you know, kind of thing. Right. But even, even that type of person, everyone seems to value the power of community and have a, you know, a tribe, have a group of people that they, they say, this is my community and here's why it's important to me and recognizes that, you know, we're social animals and we need community. Yeah. That's certainly one of the pillars of, of this movement, um, the connect the connectedness that you need and that, you know, that defines you really with, with other people, you know, which is uh, yeah, it's, it's quite different than just saying, yeah, I have my, you know, I have my recipe for success and I know what it means to be a Christian and that's it. And I can sort of always fall back on that, you know, whereas 
the, the focus here is okay. Yeah, you know what it you know what it means to be a Christian. Now let's actually go about living life and let's let's face difficulties and see how we you know how we overcome them. You know. Yeah, and I think that's really the power of community distilled into the power of podcasts that we have this community together through this and that people get to say, you know, I, I'm not alone. I walk with these other people. I might, someone else may listen to you and say, I totally disagree with this guy's faith, but I have my own community and I recognize the power of it. And I dig his music. (laughs) I hope so. Yeah. That'd That'd be great. Yeah. So, how has how has life in a quote unquote Catholic nation changed for you from before you converted to Catholicism and after? Uh, you you mean me living here in Spain? Yeah, it, it really hasn't. Uh, not that not that any way that I have really given any thought to. Um, I mean, it's a Catholic nation in terms of its history, mm-hmm. but the Spanish, it's very interesting that the, the government here is, uh, or the media, you know, faith is a private thing and it's very, very separated from, from politics and, um, well, the way it's supposed to be on paper here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but interestingly enough, the president of the United States is able to say, God bless America or pray with the nation at Thanksgiving or what have you. And that's just unthought of, uh, here in Spanish politics. So, yeah, uh, I, I don't know that it really has changed much since I've become a Catholic. I mean, it's not like I'm running around saying, oh, great. Now I'm in a Catholic country. So I've, and I become a Catholic. So this is where I need to be now. Right. No, certainly not. Certainly not. You know, the, the, um, the trends that are, or the, the, not only the trends, the tendency that we're experiencing, you know, with, with, uh, diversity on all different levels, that's, that's a phenomenon that's happening globally. So if anything, it's more of a challenge to be a Catholic, uh, you know, publicly now, even in what, you know, what one would assume is this Catholic nation, which, you know, it has to be, it has to be looked at carefully to really uh, answer that properly. I mean, the school that I teach at is, is a Catholic school, but you wouldn't really ever think it was, you know, oh, okay. from the outside. Um, huh. Why, why do you say that? Because I went to Catholic school before I went to Mount Carmel. So, right. Well, First of all, my all my students call me Keith. They don't call me Mr. Rodriguez. That's oh, okay. <laughs> that's a that's a very Spanish thing. Um, yeah, the kids wear a uniform at the school. My my kids go to the the school that I teach at. They wear a uniform, but it's it's just um, you know it's not like when I think of a Catholic school. And I didn't go to Catholic school. I grew up as a Protestant. I don't know what your experience was. Was was it a school run by nuns or priests? Yep, both M- mainly nuns, and then the priests would come in and sort of lay down the law a little bit. <laughs> oh geez, I thought the nuns did that. I saw the Blues Brothers, and they look, those nuns look pretty, pretty serious. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It's a typical scenario where the matriarchs run the show on a daily basis, but it's very much we're going to call in, you know, Father Boyle. Right. If, uh, it's Irish Catholic, really. We're going to call in mm-hmm. Father Boyle if you're not listening. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, that's that's one thing. Uh, there are no priests at our school. It's mm. all run by lay people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that sense, you wouldn't, uh, it certainly doesn't match up with the idea that I have of a, of a parochial school. Yeah. We don't, you know, the kids, they don't pray, you know, we don't have to pray in the morning. So it's, it's oh very secularized. Yeah. 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 Very different than probably what you experienced. Yeah. We had mandatory, you know, a church services and we all went to confession together and the whole bit. 
Yeah. yeah, no, no. And it's, 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 I mean, I'm very glad. And that, that also has to do with, with this community that, um, that I've joined, uh, Comunión and Liberación, or um, Communion and Liberation, because the school was, was founded by uh, friends who come from that same movement. So a lot of the ideology has passed. I mean, I would say all of it really came from, from uh, the culture around this this movement that we that we that we belong to, and like we had a mass, we had a Christmas mass, and it was completely optional. You know, it was it was outside because of COVID restrictions, and um, yeah, nobody was forced to go. So in that sense, there, you know, there's a lot of freedom. Freedom is certainly respected and given given priority. Well, that's really good. And yeah, nothing like I experienced growing up. But times have changed. I mean, you know, this was I'm talking about true. the 70s and 80s. So yeah. And, you know, uh, the Catholic Church has a very cool pope right now. Yeah. I think helps. And it, that helps. It, it indicates helps. things. You know, I I don't go out of my way to find Catholic things or keep up with the Pope too much, but you know he gets he gets some press here. Um, and then I was just flipping through Netflix, and there's a new very cool show that, and I will of course have to go and find that for the uh, show notes. But I just watched the first episode, and there's this crew of people um, interviewing the Pope. And so episode one was about love. Episode two is about, I think dreams. Um, but not in a, what did you dream of at night, but more aspiration type of dreams, I think, but I I didn't get to really play that one. Um, and then they go around the world and they're interviewing people about that topic, love or dreams or, you know, whatever, and getting real stories from people. And it's all about people who are 70 and older. Oh, wow. About looking back on their life and the, their times. And I cannot think of a maybe because this was sort of my generation. Um, uh, John Paul II might have done something like that. But I think like no, no other priests in modern times probably would have been involved with this. It's very much a Dalai Lama-ish kind of a program. And so I like that. I'm, I'm, I'm way more Buddhist nowadays. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. What's the what's the connection between or or is there a connection between Buddhism and like you say Dalai Lamaish in terms of the Pope? How do you see a connection there? That a lot of popes have been or have at least seemed to be dictatorial. You know, that whole hmm. top down right not really a person because you know oh so holy doesn't really even poop, you know, in that yeah. whole bit. Right. And the Dalai Lama has always been Hey, I'm just a person, you know, I studied this in school and I did this and I eat and, and I try to make the world a better place kind of a person as opposed to the dictatorial type of uh, leadership. Right. Right. Well, Pope Francis certainly seems to have that, that attraction as being just a a normal guy. And he's, he's broken protocol so many times in so many different ways to, to make himself yeah, more accessible. Right. And so that's the serendipity part that I, I happen to find out that I'm going to be interviewing someone who's converted to Catholicism. And I'm like, Oh, look, look at this show yeah. that just started on Netflix. It just came oh, out wow. last week. So, yeah. So it's time to wrap up and I want to make sure that you've gotten a chance to talk about everything that you want to. And normally I try to find another thread through with like people or books or music or whatever that has come into your life to shape, change, um, give depth to your life. 
So obviously music is key. Do you want to talk about any particular uh, musicians or composers or anything like that and what they mean to you? Oh, wow. Gosh, there, there, just, there would be too many to mention. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in terms of music, no, I just, um, I'm, I'm really excited about music right now, my own musical journey because of my, um, my guitar uh, studies, like I said before, they, they're coming into fruition and I'm finally now getting to do or play the way that I always wanted to play. So it's really an exciting time for me right now. You know, there's just so much technique to get through. You know, I wasn't one of those people that was born with magic fingers. I had to, uh, I've had to figure it out, you know, and over all these years, I'm still figuring things out. You know, just this, just this week, I figured out a, a wrist position that gave me more, uh, freedom in, in my uh, the articulation of my right hand fingers and it just revolutionized my ability to play you know certain things scales or arpeggios or whatever so uh, regarding music I'm, I'm I'm on fire right now I'm just really excited you know I, I just gave a couple concerts um, past couple of weeks one with a singer and one with a cello player and um, so I'm just looking forward to doing more more performing definitely and were these recorded? These concerts? Uh, no, unfortunately, they weren't recorded. And in fact, somebody recorded with a phone. And I had my son do a little sound editing, and it really wasn't good. Plus, there's just another thing that's kind of a bummer. We we were performing with masks because you know we're performing indoors, and it was you know the the past couple of weeks things got and still are a little sketchy. You know, the, right. with the Omicron variant running around or what what have you. So um, yeah, I don't want to be posting things on social media of me or the singer with a mask on. It's just not cool, you know? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so what I plan on doing is doing some recordings, uh, much like the, the YouTube piece that I, um, that you played a fragment of earlier. I want to do more recordings with people and just, like I said, look for more concerts. So I'm excited about the new music that I'm going to get to, to play that I'm going to get to study. Well, we, I'm sure will want links to anything that you can send us so that people can listen in, especially as yeah. it looks like we're going to be spending more and more time at home and online again. Yeah. Doing things remotely. Well, that was, that was why I got into this whole video thing because I, I had certain projects that I had been working on a couple of years ago and then the, the pandemic hit and I, I couldn't perform in these gigs. In fact, I wasn't performing for what, two years. And my response to that was, well, since I'm studying and I'm playing all this music, why not do some video recordings? So I got out at a church and went and recorded six different pieces, which that Bach prelude is the first of those. Just this morning, I finished editing the next video, which I'm going to upload cool. uh, within the next couple of days. So I will certainly send you a link of that. Excellent. Yeah. I put so much detail into the show notes so that people can kind of go down the rabbit hole of all the different links and influences or, you know, things that you recommend. And I just love that you've been playing basically, I think you said since you were eight and you now feel like you're hitting your stride as a musician. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's crazy. But this is, it's the irony of it. I I recorded these videos back in June and July of uh, this year. And I was so excited. I thought, yeah, I'm playing great. You know, I had some mistakes and some things that I wished had gone differently during the recording process. But um, now I'm, it's frustrating because uh, I'm playing so much better, you know, in my mind. And I just want to re-record everything. I, want, I don't want to. I don't want to publish the stuff I did six months ago because now everything's so different. So uh, I'm sure that's a very common feeling, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember uh, watching the the Beatles anthology and Paul McCartney, or no, it was George Harrison was saying, "I never." He was like, "Was it Revolver or Rubber Soul? I don't, you know, I don't really remember." Like, you, you know, you just move on to the next thing, right? Yeah. 
So even someone as, as legendary as, you know, as a Beatle wasn't all that invested in looking at what they had done in the past. They were more interested in what they were doing, you know, in the present. Yeah. I mean, I would certainly be aware of my revolver if I had, you know, done <laughs> yeah. the revolver. I'd, I'd be able to talk about it. Yeah. And he was the best Beatle. So oh, there you go. All right. So I would love for you to uh, send wishes out into the audio world in Spanish. Oh, wow. Um, pues os deseo para todos eh, la felicidad y la salud en este año 2022 que, que viene. Un abrazo muy fuerte. Gracias. De nada. Gracias a ti. Thank you so much for, uh, for this suggestion and this wonderful format you have devised. This is great. Oh, well, I appreciate that. We appreciate it. It was lovely spending this time with you. Yes, likewise. Thank you so much. And have a good night there. All right. Keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye.